All right, go ahead and grab a seat. My name is Caleb. If we haven't met before, I would love to say hello to you. Uh, if you have been coming for a little while, or maybe even just uh, this is your second week, you may notice that we have two screens up here. It's because on Easter, and normally we have a, a, a lot of folks that go even further behind the curtains, and so we want to help people uh, to be able to see everything. So if you're kind of wondering and freaking out, why are there two screens on here? This is its debut, so you can say hello to it and welcome it. Um, uh, but we are... Uh, uh, we want to help everybody uh, be able to see, but that's just a great reminder, especially if you just walked in, that Easter is next week, and on Easter, man, it's a great opportunity to invite people that normally maybe don't come to church or normally uh, are, are uh, maybe new and looking for a church, and it's a great opportunity to be able to invite people in, and a lot of people on Easter are wanting to check out churches and be able to celebrate and have something fun to do, and we have a big party every Easter, and so we'd love for you to be there and invite some friends, family, and they will be able to see, and no matter how far back uh, they, they sit. So that's what we are uh, looking forward to. We, this is our last week. We've been in a series looking at the book in the Bible, 1 Timothy. And this is a letter that Paul, uh, who was one of the early leaders of the church, one of the apostles, he writes this letter to Timothy, who's a pastor, pastoring a church. It's about five years. It's kind of been going for a little while. And he really wants the church to mature, to experience what God fully has for this church to experience. And so we've been going through this letter, and today we will... We will look at the end, what Paul closes with, and it's going to be, I'll just give you a warning up front, it's going to be about money. So if you haven't been to church in years because you're like, they always talk about money, and you said, but I'm going to give it a shot one last time. Well, your suspicions have proved true today, and we are glad that you are here. So um, <laughs> let me pray for us, and we will get into the rest of this book. Father, I thank you that you have given us an opportunity to study this letter that you have preserved for your church to be able to hear the wisdom that you bring to this pastor who is pastoring a young church similar to what we have here, God. And I thank you that we've been able to learn and grow. And I pray that you would open our minds and open our hearts to receive what you have for us today. I know that every word that you speak in the Bible is important for our lives, and this is no exception to that. We need to hear from you today, and so I ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be moving, opening our hearts and our eyes to be led by you, comforted by you, convicted by you, and that we would see who you are more clearly, that we may grow stronger in our relationships and in our faith uh, with you, Jesus. We pray this in your name. Amen. So all of us want to experience, uh, and probably a deeper, you could say, a deeper financial wisdom in our lives. How do we handle our money better? And, and even more than wisdom, we want to experience a deeper financial rest. We want to be able to just kind of be at peace when it comes to our finances. We think about money a lot. Right? We think about money a lot. Maybe you think about spending money. Uh, you think about saving money. You think about making money. Maybe you kind of recently had a job change, whether that's for the, for the better or the worse. And so you think about money as it relates to that. Maybe you've come into some money and you say, okay, I've got, I've got some money. Now, what am I supposed to do with it? Do I save a little bit? Do I spend more? Do I give more? What do I do? Or, or maybe you've lost some money and, and you're kind of looking at the debt that you're in now. Or maybe you recently changed cities. Maybe you moved from Nebraska. Nebraska, and you came out here and realized that every house cost $3 million, and you said, this is crazy. I could buy a lot of cows for that before, uh, and you came out. You can, <laughs> no offense if you moved from Nebraska, but um, 
I, <laughs> but maybe you realize, man, it, there's different monies as it kind of relates to this city in Denver. I know a lot of people are new to Denver from different places, but we think about money a lot and we're stressed about money a lot. What uh, if, you, if you go to, this is CNBC, they had an article and it says Americans are more stressed about money than work or, or relationships. And they found in this study that money is the number one thing that people are stressed about. So maybe you've got relationships and there's kind of some drama there and there's some stuff that's messed up there. Maybe your work situation's kind of tough and your boss is a jerk or your coworkers are always on your case or whatever it is. And those are stressful for you. But the big thing that tops the charts is money. That we say, man, I'm, I, I think about money a lot. I think about saving money, spending money, making money, money shifts, money, cost of living changes, and it, and it stresses us out. Well, what if we could actually experience some financial rest? What if we didn't have to argue about money with your significant other or, or with whoever it might be? What if we didn't worry about money? I mean, can you even imagine that? <laughs> what if we didn't worry about money? What if we didn't complain about money or compare ourselves financially to other people? What, what, if we, what if we could have financial rest? And that would be a beautiful thing, wouldn't it? But it's hard because all the time we're faced with money stuff in our lives whether it's dead or maybe you're kind of doing fine and then you get engaged and you're like, man, how am I going to afford now to, to be married and have money? Or you have kids and you start to go, oh man, now there's new costs and, and what do I do with that? And I mean, there's just, we, we think about money all the time. We're stressed about it. We're faced with it. And here's, here's the truth. If we're not careful, if we're not careful, money can really harm our joy. Money can really harm the, the life and the faith and the purpose that God intends for us to be able to experience. Money can get in the way of so much joy and purpose that God wants for you to experience in your life. So how can we experience a deeper rest when it comes to our finances? This is what we are going to look at. This is what Paul wants to tell Timothy to help the church with and that we will explore also. Here's what he says. Instruct those who are rich. And let me just pause there because most people don't view themselves as rich, but we are the richest. I mean, if, if you compare yourself to the world, we are rich beyond our wildest dreams. I mean, there's actually a website that you can type into how much you make and compare that globally to what people make. And I mean, unless you're in a very, very, very rare circumstance, most of us are rich. And so this is really speaking to us, and we are kings compared to even who the rich would have been when he was writing this. Instruct those who are rich in the present age not to be arrogant or to set their hope on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God, who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. Instruct them to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share, storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the coming age so that they may take hold of what is truly life. And we start with this question, which is just how do we get a deeper financial rest? If, if this is something that we're stressed about all the time and we're faced with all the time, but can really get in the way of what God desires for us, how do we get a deeper financial rest? And, and we have to look at what Paul says here. And, and here's, here's what we need to be honest with. We hope for more money, right? I mean, you don't have to raise your hand. You don't have to say amen, but we, we hope for more money, right? 
And most of us, we look at what we have now and we hope in money in some way. We think about what could happen if I had more money? What could happen if I just had a little bit more money? I, I was, um, I, my mom was in town this last week and we went to the Mint, which uh, is one of the handful of places in the United States that makes actual money. They make the coins. So they make the pennies and the nickels and, and all, all this stuff, right? And, and they were kind of giving some history and they were talking about that there's 20 pennies out there. There's 20 pennies. I can't remember all the reasons, some mistake or it's, and maybe some of you are coin collectors. I don't, but, but there's 20 pennies out there and only two of them have ever been found. But that if you have them, they're worth like $1.5 million because they're so rare. And most of us don't, I mean, you don't look at your penny, you just kind of, and so then all of a sudden we go home and start emptying our penny jar and looking through everything. What if I've got this penny, you know? And we, we go, man, what if I had some more money? We hope that we can get some more money. We hope, and this is why many of our decisions, whether it comes with work or, or uh, even what you will not have or what you will have, most of our decisions, maybe even the school that you went to or the major that you picked in college or, or, or maybe if you just said, I don't need college, I actually want to kind of be an entrepreneur or something. I mean, most of the decisions that we make in many ways revolve around, I'm not saying all of them, but most of our decisions and a lot of times. They revolve around money. A lot of our fears revolve around money. A lot of our dreams, if we think about a better life in some way, revolves around money. Why? Why is that the case? Why is it that we hope for money so much? Why is it that so much revolves around it? You know why? Because money money's powerful. With money, and we all want different things out of money, but with money, you can have a comfortable life. You can get, a, you can get comfort and enjoy what life has to offer. With money, you can have security. You can feel really secure and stable for yourself, for your family, for your kids. You can feel and be secure, which is what many of us want in life, is to be stable, to be secure. Maybe, maybe that's because you didn't have that growing up, so you want to have that. Maybe it's because you always had it growing up, and so you, you want that to say, man, money can give me security. Uh, money can give us identity. And that might be what it is for you. We look around and say, man, if I've got this much wealth, if I've got this much money, that means I'm a certain kind of person. And we might not say this out loud, but we feel, we can feel a sense of worth and value based on our income or lack thereof. Maybe you kind of struggle in life and it's because you feel like I don't have very much money compared to the other people around me. So you feel your money worth is tied to your, your inherent human worth. And so you feel worthless if your bank account is worthless. And so it can be tied to our identity. It can be tied to acceptance. If we have money, man, maybe we can, we can have certain friends that we want to be able to have. We, we can have a certain house and certain kind of car and certain kind of things, and, and we can feel more accepted by people. We can do certain things and have certain hobbies, and, and, and we can feel in. See, we hope for more money, and much of our life revolves around this, our emotional life and our actual decision-making life, because money's powerful. It gives and offers so much. And this is why Paul even says this. You know why money has so much power? It's like a God. Here's what he says. We, we looked at this, but he says, not to have their hope in money, but on God. As he's making that 
comparison. He's saying there's God and there's money. And this is what the Bible does often. Because money is a great substitute for God. Whether it's comfort or identity or acceptance or worth or safety or security, much of the things that our hearts actually should be going to God towards, money says, hey, I can bring that to you. I can offer that to you. There is nothing, listen, there is nothing in the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that Jesus makes a hard line between where he says it's either this or God except for money. Money is the only thing that Jesus says, it's either this or God. That's because it's powerful. Because it, is, it can offer us so much of what God offers us. It is a, if you want to live a godless life, money is a great substitute for God. And this is why we believe in money. We trust in money. We receive money. We hope in money. We delight in money. We we approach money with many of the same posture that the Bible says we should approach God with. But what Paul says here is it's not a good God. It is like a God. Money is like a God. It offers a great substitute for God, but it's not a good God ultimately. What Paul says is that what happens to those that hope in money is that we are tempted to become arrogant or to set our hope on the uncertainty of wealth. That there's this arrogance and uncertainty. See, money's not a good God because of both of those things. Think about this. The more money you make, the more you are prone to arrogance. The more money you make, the more you are prone to think, man, I must, I, I'm on top. I've done something. I, I must be special that I'm able to do this. Look at my hard work. Look at my education. Look at my passion. Look at my pursuit. Look at what I've been able to accomplish. And so then what happens? The more money you make, the easier it is to look down on those that don't have money. The more money that you have, the more wealth that you've accumulated, the more easy it is to look at other people that, man, they don't save or, man, they're just not hardworking or they're whatever it might be. Their arrogance can have all sorts of different expressions, but man, we have to be honest with our own hearts. The more that we make, the easier it is to look down on people that don't have as much as us. So it's a bad God because the more that you actually align yourself with it, the less humble your life is, the more your relationships can be harmed instead of a good God that would actually produce a deeper humility in us and, and a more graciousness in us. And it's uncertain. This is, the, this is one of the tricky things about wealth. This is one of the tricky things about money that maybe you have uh, tasted very acutely. That money, when you have it, you go, yes, finally, everything's starting to click. But it's uncertain. It's, unsta- it's, it's not stable. You might have it and then it's gone. You might have landed a great job and then it fell apart. I mean, you may have, you may have had great stuff and then it's gone. It's uncertain. It's not stable. He says, money is like a God. We can compare it to God, but it's not a good God. And so it creates an arrogance and it creates an anxiety. You feel anxious about money at all? You know why? It's because it's uncertain, which is what he says. 
If you ever have felt anxious about money, it's because it's uncertain. You're not sure. Am I going to have it? Am I not going to have it? Am I going to have enough? Am I not going to have enough? Will my house sell for this much? Will it not? Will I, will I be able to get the promotion? Will I? It's uncertain. So we feel anxiety about money. We feel stressed about money and arrogant often with money. You felt this, right? I know I felt, I know I felt these things. Whether you're a Christian or, or not a Christian, I mean, most of us can agree, yeah, wealth can do that. It can create a sense of entitlement or arrogance, and it can create anxiety, which is why in America it's the top thing that people are stressed about. It's, it's hard for us. We don't like it, but it's, it's reality. So how do we get the rest? How do we get a deeper financial rest? And here, here's the key. Here's, here's the way. It's not, hey, stop focusing on money. That's not what it is. The way that you get financial rest is not stop thinking about money, stop focusing on money, or if you're kind of maybe a little bit more free-spirited to even say, hey, who, you know, it's just money, who cares? It's just money. It's not a big deal. Let's not be so uptight about it. It's just money. That's not the way that you get a deeper financial rest. What he says, the way to overcome if, if you find yourself in the, in, the, in the majority of America that says, I, I'm stressed out by money, I've got some money anxiety, whether it's a little bit or a lot of bit, if you say, man, that, that's me, how do you get it? Here's what Paul says. He says, to set our hope, not on the uncertainty of wealth, but on God. To set our hope on God. What does that mean? to set our hope on God. Here's how you get the financial rest that we want. It's to set our hope on God. Now, that's an active posture, to set it. Like if I, if I take this little clicker thing and set it there, that's me doing something. Or if you think about, uh, I know we don't listen to the radio very much anymore, but if you were to set the radio station on a certain channel and say, I'm setting it there, means I'm focusing it on there. I'm placing it there. I'm letting it rest there. See, this is what we do, whether it may be often unconsciously or subconsciously, we set our hope on money. We set our hope there. So we think about it. Like think about the particulars of what it would mean that we set our hope on money. It means that we, we actively think about it. We say, okay, when I have this much money, then I will be able to X, Y, Z, right? That's to set our hope, to set our confidence for the future, to set our uh, vision of a good life in the future on money. So if you have financial goals, you have in some way set your hope on money. I'm not saying that's bad. I'm just saying that there's a part that that's what it means. It means to say, okay, if I can get this much money, then my future will be better. If I can make this much, if I can be in my job for this amount of time, if I, can get, uh, if I can be in this job and get promoted, and then maybe that will give me access to another job that I'm looking for, if I can hold on to my house for a few more years, if I can save this much, then I'll be able to have this. If I can put this much in retirement, then all of that is setting our hope on money. So what does it mean then when he says to set 
our hope on God. It's the same kind of stuff. It's in the particulars to think through, to act. This is where I'm saying it's an active posture. We know how to do that with money. All the things I just described. We know how to actively set our hope on money and be really detailed and particular about it. Paul says, here's how you're going to get a deeper financial rest. Set actively in the particulars, in the particulars, set your hope on God. Think about your future with God. Envision what it means that God is going to be present in your life. Envision what life will be with him in charge, with him in control. Think about him and who he can be to you a year from now and three years from now. Think about who he is and what he has done and what he can do for you. That is what it means to set our hope on God. And he even gives us particulars to help us. He says to set our hope on him as two things, really who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. This is revealing to us a couple things about God's character. First, it's that he's a provider to set our hope on God who richly provides us with all things to enjoy. To set our hope on God as provider. What that means is that God is for you. That God will provide for you. That doesn't mean God will provide you with the lavish lifestyle of anything your dreams could ever envision. But it means God will take care of you. God will provide for you. The God, the Bible says that Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And Jesus has provided for you, and he is providing for you, and he will provide for you. You see, we can look at our lives. Come on, we can look at our lives and say, I did this. Right? We can look at your life and say, I made the choices that brought me here. I'm the one that selected the school that got me the education. I'm the one that put in the hard work. I'm the one that shows up early and leaves late at the office. I'm the one that knows how to, if you're honest, I I can make the the manipulative uh, decisions and choices and I can schmooze in the right way and I I can do the right things to get the right people on my side. It's all about who you know. And man, I know them. Like we can do that and go, it's me. The money I have today is me. I provided for myself. Paul says, look, I want to help you get rest. Part of where that comes is you need to see every good thing that we have in our life, God provided it to us. He made you who you are. He gave you the intellect you have. He gave you the creativity you have. He gave you the personality you have. He gave you the experiences and the background that you have. Yeah, but I came from nothing, okay? And God's the one that put that drive in your heart. And God's the one that preserved your life. And God's the one that brought the relationships providentially into your life to guide you and help you. He provided for you. He is a provider. See, he says, set your hope on God instead of on money. Because when you begin to see that God is a provider, you begin to see, okay, If that's true about God, then I can hope in a provider who is with me and for me today and will be tomorrow. He says, set your hope on God who is provider and that he's for our joy. Set your hope on God who richly provides us everything to enjoy. See, God is a provider, but he's not just a provider uh, like government assistance or something. 
He's a provider that says, I want your joy. I've provided for you. I've taken care of you because I want your joy. The things that I've given to you in your life, I have given to you so that you can enjoy. Here's what this means. God is for you. It's not against you. God is for you. I know maybe that's hard because you can compare your life and see other people and see, but God says, I'm for you. I want your joy. I'm not hold. listen, God's not holding out on you. It might feel like that. That might be part of why you feel anxious or stressed because we look at other people's lives and we see other things. And he says, God is a provider and he wants your joy. And he's not holding out on you. So I was talking to my son. Um, this was a few months ago. And I don't, I don't even know where he came up with this. But he just, he was like, hey, yeah, I want to be rich. I was like, oh, and my son's nine. Just so you know. He's like, I, I want to be rich. Or he's almost nine. I want to be rich. I love money. I was like, well, I've got a Bible verse for you, you know. <laughs> but he's I love money. I want to be rich. And my wife was there too, and she and she came up next to me and she said, Bud, Owen, do you um do you know? She said, uh, you know what really makes us rich? And she kind of stood next to me, and I was like, love. And I don't think that's what she was thinking. She it was like, uh. Um, and he was also kind of like, okay, yeah, love. That makes you rich. That's not, can't, you know, can't buy candy with love. And, and then she goes, okay, and, and she's trying to help him see, look, God's got everything. God, she goes, hey, do you know who has all the money in the world? And he goes, the government. It's <laughs> like, what kind of a conspiracy? Alex Jones, how did my son turn into? But... It's like, no, that's not, God's got all the money in the world. And we're trying to help him see, because he's got this desire for whatever reason, wherever it came from, to say, man, I want money. I want to be rich. And we want him to see, look, you know what? God's got all the money in the world. God's got all the money in the world, and he's a provider. And he's not holding out on you. And he loves, look, we need to know the same thing, because we can think, man, the government's got all the money in the world, or we can think, man, my friend's got all the money in the world, or, or we can kind of think about that instead of, you know who's got all the money in the world? God's got all the money in the world. It all belongs to him, the Bible says. And he's a provider, and he wants your joy. He's not holding out on you. He's for you. He wants good for you. That gives us financial rest, because we begin to say, I can put my hope in that. Man, the wealth is uncertain. I might have it, I might not. And it can create in us an arrogance even when we do get it because we think I did it. But to put our hope in God, it says he's a provider, he wants my joy, he's for me, that creates a better hope. It creates a more certain hope. Paul is saying that God sees your life and he wants you to experience confidence and rest instead of anxiety. So what happens then? If, if, if that is what creates in us a financial rest, what does living with this financial rest actually look like in our lives? If, if we are to actually experience a rest where we say, I'm hoping in God because I know he's for me, he provides, and he wants my joy, now I can be at peace? What, what does living with that look like? What does that do to us? And, and here's what Paul says. He says, to instruct those that are rich to do what is good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and willing to share. 
He says, here's what a life with hope on God looks like. It looks like people, and these are all just kind of explanations. It's to do what is good. What do you mean to do what's good? To be rich in good works. What do you mean by that? To be generous and willing to share. So he says, this is what it, this is what it looks like. To live with financial rest where money is no longer your hope, but God is your hope. It looks like to say, well, then I don't need to hang on to this anymore. I can actually, I can actually release. I can actually be free. I can actually be, as he says, generous. But here's, here's the thing. It's so important. It is so hard to know if you are generous. It's how do you know if you're generous or not? How do you know? You say, yeah, I'm generous. How do we actually know if we're generous or not? This is why Paul says that Timothy has to instruct the rich to be generous. Because we don't know if we're rich or not. We are easily deceived into thinking that we are generous. He says, instruct them how to be generous. Instruct them what a willing, generous heart looks like. We Look, the Bible over and over again, when it talks about money, it says that we are deceived, that we're foolish. One of the things that Jesus says about money is be on guard about money. Be on guard that you, that you don't become a greedy person, that you don't become... And why? Because we don't know. We're deceived so easily. And so he says, here's, here's how you can live with financial rest. Be generous. But you have to be instructed on how to be generous. So here's what I want to do. I want to give us four questions that can test our hearts. And only you can answer these. I'm not going to have you raise your hand. We're not going to put up rankings on the board up here. But, but I just want you, that's why we got the big screen. We're going to put your faces up here, right? I, I, just, want, I just want you to, you, this is what the Bible gives us to go, okay, Am I generous or not? This is how, what a life living with financial rest looks like. Am I generous? I'm going to give you four test questions that the Bible gives to us, that the Bible teaches us. And you just do with this. You just wrestle with this. You think about this. You use this as a little like Cosmo magazine test, you know, and go, oh, should I be with him or not? Or whatever, you know. So here, here we go. Number one is would people say my giving is described as rich? And, and the reason I say would people say, would others say, is because it's easy for, you know, the job interviews do the same thing, right? You go in for a job interview, and if they ask you, hey, what are your, what's three things that describe you? And you're like, awesome, fly, and cool, you know? And, and they go, how would other people describe you? And you're like, oh, uh, well... Uh, they might say I'm a little pushy. They, like our perspective shifts when we think about what other people describe us as. And, and the word that Paul used here is that we are to be rich in generosity. That we're to be, like you think about rich when you think about, man, are you rich? Or what, what does a rich person look like? And Paul says, take that, take your image of rich and apply that to your generosity. So would other people, if everybody knew about your giving, your life of generosity, how much you financially give beyond yourself, would people say, man, that's rich. And the Bible gives us, we looked at this in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9 in December, if you want to kind of explore this more fully. But Paul's writing to the church and he tells them what their giving should look like. And he doesn't say, everyone needs to give $500 or everyone needs to give $150. He doesn't say 
But he gives them, here's what our giving should look like. And it's basically an exposition of rich. Here, here's some things that, that he says that we, our giving should look like. That it should be overflowing. These are all just straight from, from 2 Corinthians, if you want to go back and look at it. It should be overflowing in a wealth of generosity. So think about your giving and say, would other people look at my giving and say, it's overflowing? Would people say, it's beyond my ability? They know, like if people knew what you made and they looked at your giving, would people go, whoa, man, that's beyond your ability. That doesn't mean you're going into debt because you're, it, means, it means that you are giving so sacrificially. And, and these people in this church, they begged us earnestly. Does that describe your heart when it comes to giving? That you go, man, I want to give. I'm begging. How can I give? And that they excel. He says, he says, you excel in faith and you excel in love and you excel in hope. And I want you to excel in giving. Would other people say, man, you're giving, you are excelling at giving. And there's, he says that they had this eager desire like, again, I, you just got to test your heart. Is your heart say, I eagerly desire to give? Like, most of us around Christmas time, we, if you got nieces, nephews, or kids, we eagerly desire to give to them, right? Most people, when it comes to Christmas, they're not like, okay, what do you want, a Tootsie Roll? Like, that's not, that's not our hearts normally, right? We go, I eagerly desire to give. I want to bless my niece, my nephew, because their face is going to light up and they're going to say, you're the best aunt, uncle, mom, dad, whatever you are, you're so great. We eagerly desire. Do you eagerly desire to give? See, all of this is what Paul says when he says rich, to be rich in generosity. So first question, would people say my giving is described as rich? What's the answer? Yes? No. Hands up if it... No, I'm just kidding. Um, second question is this. Does my giving reflect what Jesus has done for me? Does my giving, does the way that I give financially reflect what Jesus has done for me? This is what the New Testament over and over and over again uses to motivate our hearts. See, in the Old Testament, and maybe you've heard of this if you've kind of been around church for a while, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament before Jesus came, what people, what God's people, what Israel was required to give was 10%. That's where we get the word tithe. It means a tenth. They gave 10% of their income. Here's just a, one of the verses that talks about, I mean, it's all over the Old Testament, but uh, God is speaking. He says, will a man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. How do we rob you, you ask? By not making the payment of the tenth and the contributions. The tithe and the contributions. God, God said in the Old Testament, if you do not give 10% of your income, you are robbing me. I've given you stuff and you've said, nah, I think I'm going to hang on to this. And so the government says today, right? Like if you don't, if you don't give the government their money, they're not going to go, I bet you needed it. They're going to say, you're robbing us. That belongs to us. We will garner your wages. God says, if you do not give to me the money that I have given to you, I'm letting you keep 90% of it, but I want you to give 10% to me. That's Old Testament, okay? It's Old Testament. Now, come to the New Testament, and it gives us a different kind of logic. It doesn't just give us percentages and numbers. and What it says is, look at what Jesus has done for you. Look, at, this is from 2 Corinthians, the passage I kind of referenced. Paul is writing to this church, wanting them to give. And he says, but as you excel in everything, 
see that you excel in this act of grace also. Then he gives the motivation, the reason. He doesn't say, because you know you're supposed to give 10%. That's not what he says. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. It's a different kind of motivation, right? He's not saying, give this percentage, give this amount, or you're robbing me. He says, look at everything that Jesus gave. I mean, what, how much did Jesus give to us? He gave us everything. He was rich. He was with God the Father in heaven, perfect relationship, perfect community. And he left it all to serve us, to come to this earth and die on the cross to save us. He says, look, he was rich, yet he became poor. He gave up everything for you. He says, let that move in your heart. This is why author and pastor Tim Keller, this is a quote I use often because I, I think it's so helpful. He says this about kind of the Old Testament, New Testament. He says, it makes no sense at all to imagine that God would have higher standards for his Old Testament people than he would have for his New Testament people who have far greater privileges we have far greater privileges in Jesus. Almost certainly Christians should consider the tithe the minimum standard for their giving and should always look to go beyond the tithe if they can. Because it's to look at Jesus. Does my giving reflect what Jesus has done for me? That's question number two. Question number three is this. Am I giving first to God before anything else? Am I giving first to God before anything else? This is a principle that the Bible uses called first fruits. First fruits, is, this is just one of the verses that talks about this in Proverbs. It says, honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. See, in an agrarian society, people that made vegetables and fruits and farming, all this kind of stuff, they gave the first to God, to the temple. Now, we don't, I mean, if you say, I'm going to give my first fruit to God, I've got a blueberry tree that's got a handful of blueberries. Like, that's not what it means for us. First fruits is a principle that says you give the first and best to God before anything else. Before anything else, we give to God. You know why? Because if we don't, our life fills up. Right? If we don't give our first and best to God, our life fills up. You know this. When you made a little bit of money at one point in your life. And, and now you make more money, probably. Maybe not. Some of us go backwards and forwards and backwards and forwards. But you probably, at some point in your life, made a little bit. I was looking, you, I was looking at, you can enter into like the Social Security website and see everything that you made like over the course of your life. I just, my mom was telling me about this and we looked in and was like, oh, when I was 17, I made like $150 or something. I was like, yes, I make more money than that today, you know. But you look at your life and go, okay, I, I used to make this much and you weren't, Starving to death, you, you weren't dying on the streets. Then you made this much, but what happened? Your life filled up to match that, right? And then you made this much, and your life filled up to match that. And then you made this much, and it's not like you used to make this, and then you said, once I get this, I'm just going to keep living, and now you've just got all this money stored up in the bank. Like, we usually fill up to match what we make. Which is why one of the principles that the Bible gives to us that's so important is to say that we honor God with the first fruits of all our money. That we give first to God before anything else. If not, our life fills up to match it. There was this um, image that came out on Twitter a little bit ago, a few months ago, that people kind of freaked out about. 
uh, because it said, how, and maybe you want to look at this screen, but it says how to make 500, this was a couple that put this out, and they said how to make 500,000 a year and still feel average. Because they're saying, man, we make 500K, but man, we're, we're, just, we're just normal people. Now, I don't know, maybe you make 500K and you're like, yeah, exactly, but okay, that's fine. My, my point is just that we fill into our life. Because for them, they, they put on here, man, we're only able to, you know, give $36,000 to retirement. That's, that's pretty normal. It's pretty average. We're only able to give $36,000 to our retirement. And some of you might go, man, I, I would want that as my paycheck, you know, not necessarily as my retirement. And, and they say, man, you know, we're just, we're just pretty average. We can only spend $18,000 a year on vacation. We're just pretty average, you know. Uh, we're just pretty average. We can only spend, uh, you know, $12,000 on our children's uh, lessons. And we can only spend about $10,000 on miscellaneous because, you know, something always comes up, you know. I think, I, have, I think our miscellaneous budget is like $40 a month. So, you know, it's like, hey, well, why don't we like split the difference? You give me your miscellaneous. Something comes up, right? It's like, but for this couple, my point, look, if you make 500000 and this looks exactly like your budget, I'm not trying to make fun of you and say, my point is to say that it's easy, no matter what you make, to say, I feel average. I'm not rich. I'm average. Because our life just fills in to whatever we make. Our life fills in to whatever we make. Whether you make $30,000 or you make $500,000, most people... Most, this is a statistical fact, most people say, I'm middle class. Most people feel average. So we have to ask this question, am I giving first to God before anything else? Because if not, life fills up. We might feel like this. How could I ever, how could I ever give as rich, overflowing, excelling, eager? How could I ever give based on what Jesus has done for me? If the Old Testament, they gave 10%, and I'm supposed to, Tim Keller says, and, and Paul says, man, my giving is actually supposed to look at Jesus and say, he gave everything to me. I'm going to give out of that. How I could never afford that. How could I ever give 10% of my money? But you know what we mean? I could never afford that after I've already built my budget, after I've already saved for the house, and now I've got the mortgage. After I've already chosen the school and I've got the student loans. After I've already put $10,000 in miscellaneous. After I've already paid for my kids' sports and clubs. After I've already paid for my, the education. After I've already bought the car. After I've already, after this, how could I, after I've saved my 401k, after, how could I ever afford it? This is why the Bible gives us such an important principle, which is to give to God before we think about anything else. That would radically reorient and change many of our lifestyles. This is how you know if you're generous, that you're giving so much, it changes you. To give in such a way that your life can remain the same is not giving like what Jesus has done to us. His giving changed his life completely. It's kind of quiet in here. Okay, number four. Um, do my giving priorities match God's? Do my giving priorities match God's? Because, okay, we're talking about giving. So you say, okay, well, I'm going to give $1,000 to whatever. Or I'm going to give to this. Or, you know, those people on there had their alumni association. I'm going to give to that. I'm going to... Do my giving priorities match what's on God's heart? We want to align our heart with God's heart. Now, man, be as generous as you can be in your life. That's amazing. But we want 
are first to go to God before anything else, and we want our hearts. Don't you want your heart to match God's heart? Don't you want your giving priorities and focus to match God's? And here's what Paul says again in, in 1 Corinthians. He's talking about what God's giving priorities are, Old Testament and New Testament. He puts them together, and it's the church. That's, what God, that's what's on God's heart is the church. Here's what Paul says. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple, so this is Old Testament. Don't you know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? He's saying in the Old Testament, the priests and the temple, man, that's where they got their living from. That's, what, that's why God said to give the tithe to the temple. And then he says in the same way, The Lord, that's Jesus, commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. That God's priority is the gospel. God's priority is his people. God's priority is the church. That's what's on God's heart because he wants people to know the good news. Which is why this is pastor and uh, Dr. J.D. Greer says, I don't believe Christians should give only to the local church, but I do believe that Christians should give first to their local church. In the Old Testament system, he's just summarizing Paul here. The tithe went to the work of God's institution, the temple. Other important things like funding itinerant rabbis, so other teachers, other pastors, or providing for the poor came from giving beyond the tithe. In the Old Testament, they gave upwards of actually 20% of their income. The principle there, I think, is that the first fruits of our giving should go to God's new institution, the church. See, the church is what is on God's heart. We looked at this in the middle of this letter. Paul says the whole reason he writes this is about the church. He says, if I should be delayed, I've written so that you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. See, God says, this is my house. No other organization in the world, no other thing that is good, that's great. My wife and I give to other organizations and other things, but nothing else is God's household, his family. That God says, this is actually my house. This is my family. These are my people. This is only, the church is the only organization that God started. That God said, this is a pillar and foundation of truth. This is where people will know who I am and experience me. So those are your four questions. Would people say my giving is described as rich? Does my giving reflect what Jesus has done for me? Am I giving first to God before anything else? Do my giving priorities match God's? These are the tests that we need to see, am I generous? This is what living with financial rest looks like, is actually not to hang on to money, but to release it. To release it because it's not your hope anymore. We don't just release it into the air, we release it in generosity. This is what, this is what it looks like. Last question is this, what happens as we live with this kind of financial rest? What happens? How does it result? And and Paul gives us this. He says that we need to be willing to share storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation. Storing up treasure. See, what what are you storing for, saving for? What are you saving for right now? Maybe you're saving for a vacation you want to take, or maybe you're saving for your retirement. Maybe you're saving for your kid's college, or maybe you're saving for a house. Or What are you storing up for? What are you saving for? He says, I, that's good. I want you to think about that money used now can save for something later. But he says, I want to give you a bigger perspective. I want to reorient it to something better. He says, you can store up for an eternal foundation. That you can build now a foundation eternally. That this life is not all there is. 
And the way we use our money today can have an impact on eternity. Because, and Jesus says the same stuff, that we should store up treasure for ourselves in heaven. And that's not that we're going to have a load of gold or something in heaven based on the money here. But it's to say we can invest today in people. We can, go, we can put our money where God wants his money to go to. Loving people, caring for, in the church. In the church, you know what happens? People find friendship. In the church, people that are suffering find comfort. In the church, people that are struggling in their life are able to experience growth. In the church, people that don't know about God or unsure of who he is are able to learn his character. In the church, people that have struggled with sin are able to experience grace and have their identities reformed. In the church, people that have experienced addictions are able to be helped with those. In the church, people that's marriages are struggling are able to experience healing. And Jesus says, and Paul says, and God says, when you put money into my people, that invests eternally. It's building a strong foundation. You want to save your money? You want to store it up? Don't just think about your 401k. Think about eternity. Think about building a strong foundation there, he says. This is what begins to happen. We get to actually be a part of something that matters eternally. You've all heard it said that you can't take it with you when you go, right? We know that as soon as you die, everything you've saved and everything you have is gone. But when we invest our money like this, it actually goes forward eternally. It matters significantly. See, we often think our life is false in some way. Here's what I mean. We, we look at our life and say, this is not the true version of what my life is going to be. This is just the starter house. The future house is my true house. This, we look at, this is not my, look, don't, don't look at this. This is not my real car. My, my real car, my true car, my be, it's, it's over here. This is not my, this is not my real income. My real income, the truer income, the bet, it's over here. See, we look at our life and think it's false in some way. It's not the true version of what it's going to be. And the true version is over here. Paul actually says this line that is so important and really in many ways is the heart of our church. He says, you're right that in some ways your life is false. You're right that in some ways your life is not everything that it can be or should be. But it's not by putting your hope in money that creates the better version and the truer version. He says that when we live like this, when we are rich in generosity, when our hope is on God, he says, do this so that they may take hold of what is truly life. See, what is truly life, what true life is, is experiencing all that God is and all that he's done for us and all that he is as hope, as provider, as savior, and saying, this is not life as it is needing to be or should be or can't. This is, this is a false version in some way. But true life is when my heart is attached to him and my giving is attached to him and my priorities are attached to him and my mind is attached to him and all that he is to me affects all that I am and all that I do and all that I give. This frees us. It gives us financial rest. It gives us financial confidence. So I don't know what that means for you. You've got some questions that are, were up here. I, I don't know what it means for you. Maybe for you, it just encourages you to go, that is, what my, that is my life. And maybe it's even hard, right? Because to give like this does cost something in it, and it can hurt in some ways. And go, but man, I'm thankful I'm able to be a part of this. I, I don't know what it means for you. Maybe it means to confess to God. 
that your hope's been in money and that you haven't been generous in the ways that he describes. I, I don't know what it means for you, but you should ask God to let your heart be generous with what he's given to you. And now I have to give you a second conclusion. I'm sorry, that was the real conclusion, but here's a second conclusion. Because Paul kind of wraps up the letter with this, and then he gives one final charge to Timothy, which is appropriate as we just close this series. And here's what he says. He says, Timothy, this is the very end of his letter, kind of summing up what he said, Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to you. And there's been these false teachers that kind of want to get Timothy off course and want to teach different things and want to get the focus off Jesus. And he says, avoiding irreverent and empty speech and contradictions from what's falsely called knowledge. By professing it, some people have departed from the faith. Grace be with you all. So here's what Paul ends with and here's what we end with in this series. Paul says to guard what's been entrusted. To guard what's been entrusted. See, when you guard something, it means there's something of value, something of importance, something that matters. You don't just guard. I mean, I'm not going to guard this. This is going in the recycling. But you guard things that really matter. At the Mint, I told you I was at, I mean, they've got 13% of the nation's gold there. So if you're planning a heist, you know. But they've got guards. They've got special police that are on their jurisdiction is just the Mint. Because they guard, because gold, it's important, it's valuable. Three bricks are $1.2 million, they said. So it's valuable, and they guard it, and they protect it. And they protect it and guard it, not just because it's pretty and it's gold, but because it has benefit. That if, they said, you know, our country ever needs it, it's there for a rainy day. It, it would benefit, Paul says. Guard what has been entrusted to you. What's he talking about? The gospel the good news of who Jesus is. See, this whole letter has been an appeal to Timothy to do just this, to do guarding of what has been entrusted. And the reason is because God says, this is so valuable. I want people to know that I've died for them and forgiven them. I want people to know that I'm a father and they can be adopted into my household. I want people to know that they can be free and experience my grace I want people to know that are, that are suffering or financially stressed out that they can have a, a deeper hope because there's a God that provides for them and wants their joy. Timothy, guard that. Don't let people get you off course from that. Don't let that message get messed up. I need to guard that because it's valuable and it matters that my people know this. So you want to experience life stronger than it is today? You want your relationships, you want your faith, you want your finances, you want life to be stronger than it is today. God says, I want this guarded. This is everything for you. To know who I am and to know who you are in relationship to me. Guard it. That's why we've been looking at this series and this is why as we close, we take communion. Because we remember this message that Paul said to be guarded that Jesus' body was broken and his blood was shed to give us true life, to give us a deeper hope. Jesus spent his blood. He spent everything to bring us into his family. And he tells us as the church, as a people, to guard that because he knows that's what gives us life. We pray with me as we close our time in communion and singing a few songs. Jesus, I thank you that you would give us life. That you would bring us into your family, 
call us to yourself. I thank you that you give us grace that we don't deserve. I thank you that you are a more sure hope than money could ever be. You are a provider and you want joy for us. Help us to put our hope on you, our love towards you, our faith in you. Even as we sing these songs, I pray, let these truths go deeper into our heart. And I pray as we take communion that you would just even now, God, help us to be a generous people that, that reflects your generosity to us. In your name we pray.